as well for, for the invitation. Um, as indicated, I'm, I'm talking also about sort of legal approaches to detention. So hopefully um, you'll find that the paper ties in fairly well uh, with uh, the two previous speakers. Um, the purpose of, of my paper really was to, in some senses, go back over some issues that we might think are quite basic, and it's just to question how we, through the, the law, conceive of detention. So I'm going to cover three uh, areas fairly briefly, obviously, in the time. So just to, to consider really why we detain and how we go about controlling detention through both the common law and the human rights, which we've heard a little bit uh, about from Catherine. And then just to maybe explore and for something for discussion later on, and hopefully throughout the day, really what we can learn from what the, the judiciary particularly is doing in relation to detention. If I start off really then just going over some sort of basics, which is obviously that we're all aware here that there's a right to liberty and security of the person. And um, one of the things obviously entailed with that is there's, in a sense, is an assumption when we talk about right to, to liberty, that it's a, it is this, this great right, and often the judges are, are stating that, that it's in a sense unlimited. But of course we know through international law, um, a lot of the instruments which mention it, uh, talk about the, the right to liberty, but then go on to, to say that actually it does allow for certain limitations to be placed on liberty. And normally that's about saying that uh, detention shouldn't be arbitrary or that it should be in accordance with some procedure established by law. So having started off with that opening phrase that we see in so many of the inter international documents that there's a right to liberty, we then have to accept in some senses that and actually it's... Uh, it is limited within the law. So, as I say, not arbitrary. And in the European Convention, as we've seen, uses certain other language that actually you can use detention to prevent unauthorized entry or to implement removal from a state. And sometimes there's a consideration if uh, detention is actually necessary. So basically what I'm saying, obviously, is that detention, in a sense, is, is deemed to be acceptable um, if it's justified. And we describe the right um, often in, in the case law, we often see these statements by the judges, that it is this preeminent right and the foundation stone of freedom in democracy. So my first question is, how is it that we've reached this position that we're willing to circumscribe this, this supposed great right, this preeminent right, this foundation stone of a right to liberty? Well, I'm sure for most people here who are familiar with detention, we can turn back to history. And if, if we look, obviously, at the Magna Carta, um, go that far back, we, we find that actually even there, detention itself uh, wasn't uh, prohibited as of itself necessarily, but um, it was only detention that was not sanctioned by law. So we can actually uh, look back over a you know, number of centuries and find that uh, if you take the Magna Carta as a sort of starting point, that actually it isn't just saying, you know, you can't detain people, but actually it's where it's not sanctioned by law. And what's happened, interestingly, I think, over the years, and if we look at some of the comments from certain judges, so, for example, uh, a fairly eminent judge, Lord Bingham, he refers in an article to, to the origins from the Magna Carta, and in an interesting statement, he actually talks about detention and powers of detention applying to criminal suspects those suffering mental illness and those seeking entry to a country or waiting deportation from it. And I think it's quite interesting just to pause there for a moment and look at that statement more closely because what it tells us is that for a long time, 
and certainly throughout the 20th century, the judiciary were fully accepting that there was this power to detain for what we might just generally term migrants seeking entry to the United Kingdom, and that they were, in a sense, on a par with criminals or those who were seriously mentally ill. So what we don't see in his discussion is any question of the actual purpose or appropriateness of detention of itself in the context of immigration. And so what I'm saying is that, in a sense, there's been this uh, easy slippage of immigration detention, particularly in this extension to asylum seekers. In a sense, we could say that it's happened a little bit by stealth. But as Michael referred to earlier, we, we have then this, this um, uh, conflation of asylum and immigration with criminal behavior. So we might pose the question before moving on and just looking at actually what the judiciary have been doing as to why has this happened? Well, it might be on this assumption then that if we're treating asylum seekers and immigrants as criminals, then we could base it on the same principles perhaps that arise when you may be looking at criminal incarceration. So one theory would be, say, a theory of consent. And that would say that any individual member of society might consent by behaving in a certain way to particular unpreferred outcomes or even to actions that wouldn't, would be considered Im immoral in the absence of consent. So in other words, we as members of society obviously sign up to certain, to certain laws and if we breach those laws, then there's an element of this consent to a form of punishment which might entail incarceration. And as I'm sure you're aware, increasingly this has been used in relation to territories, uh, terrorists, sorry, post 9-11. And um, obviously this is actually adding on that in the sense that these people have given up their right in some senses to be treated humanely. Now we can follow that through and say, yes, okay, we can see that that applies to the criminal and perhaps also applies to those who are seriously mental, mentally ill in the sense that they might be a threat to themselves or to others, and possibly also to foreign nationals who are in breach of criminal law. But I think where it becomes much more problematic, as we've been hearing, of course, is what we might uh, describe as pure administrative or immigration detention. In other words, detention for administrative convenience um, only. And of course, that applies to the situation and particularly re relevant to asylum seekers. Now, we, we can look at it as in terms of consent, and that's slightly linked in, as we've been hearing, with this idea of, of state sovereignty and, and the supposed historic right of the state to admit and exclude and expel aliens. So again, following on from that, there's an assumption then that the state has a, a right almost to do what it wants with individuals coming into the state. And if they cross the border, they have to accept that they are bound by the, the rules and the laws of that state, and of course can expect some form of protection. But that's just a slightly uh, a, a theoretical, I suppose, underpinning of it. As we're aware, there are much more practical justifications given for detention uh, of non-nationals. So, for example, as we know, the fast tracking of asylum seekers, uh, trying to prevent immigration control from being undermined, protection of the public, even providing some form of accommodation, and uh, deterring irregular migrants and so forth. So there are obviously a range of practical justifications that are 
are stated for the detention of non-nationals. Now, there have been a number of studies looking at this, and um, often they describe these justifications, these practical justifications, as somewhat weak or unproven, and certainly largely politically motivated. So we take, for example, the United Kingdom, um, a reason that's often cited in the, in the policy documents is the, the, um, the risk of absconding. Well, in some of the research that's been undertaken, of course, we find actually the risk of absconding wasn't that high. There was one, one study done in 2000, 2001 where 98 asylum detainees who were deemed to be quite risky for absconding actually um, didn't when they were uh, released on bail. And the Home Office doesn't provide statistics on this, but as we know, it appears very high in their reasons for actually uh, agreeing to the detention. So the data is not there, but it's obviously one of the, the, the main reasons um, that is used in, in deciding to detain. We know for the reason we might ask, well, why is that? Well, of course, uh, this plays well, as we've been hearing, both politically and with the public, that we're, we're protecting against this threat that I referred to earlier. Now, Legonsky, um, for those of you who, who have done some study on the US, will be aware of his work in, in examining some of these reasons. And so he's looked in the United States context as these justifications for uh, detaining people. And he finds that singling out asylum seekers is especially difficult to justify. The paradox, of course, it, what he says is that those who we might term genuine are more likely to abscond because of the fear of return. And in his argument, detention, and we would all accept this, of genuine asylum seekers would seem hard to reconcile with humanitarian values. But even for him, as a lawyer, he says it's not irrational to detain in these circumstances. So we find that, again, we're reverting back to the law as the ultimate judge of what is rational or irrational. And the moral <coughs> basis, if you like, of detention is somewhat masked once more. So I want to move on then to that second question. Um, following on then that from the assumption that there are these limitations placed on the detention, and in a sense that kind of battle about the morality of detention has been lost, how do we go about actually deciding what is rational or irrational, what is reasonable or not? Well, of course, we apply, as we know, the rule of law. And the judiciary in the United Kingdom obviously deemed this to be somewhat sac sacrosanct. And here we're meaning equality before the law. So for the asylum seeker, let's say, who comes forward and is disputing detention, then we're, we're saying to them that the rule of law applies, they're equal before the law. Just on an aside, though, it might be worth noting that actually it wasn't until about 1921 that aliens were deemed to be sort of treated on the same basis as citizens in terms of civil rights. And it's quite late, 1984, um, until we, we have a, a judgment where actually um, Lord Scarman said there was actually no distinction between British nationals and others in terms of habeas corpus application. So it's quite recent, really, that we're getting these statements from the judiciary about the kind of equality of the alien, if you like, to the citizen, which I think ties in a little bit with, with what Michael was saying about legal status. So in terms of how we go about um, controlling detention there, then we're looking at the, obviously, of the issue of judicial review and the supervision by 
the judiciary of executive decision making. And the point I just want to, to make in relation to this, it all comes down, in a sense, to this very elastic concept of reasonableness. So to take an example of quite well-known case of the Refugee Legal Centre, which challenged the three-day fast-tracking process in the United Kingdom as being uh, unfair. And in that case, what we, we see is that the judiciary did look at it and said, yes, three days is very tight, you know, it's going to be quite hard to present a sort of convincing case in these circumstances, and actually found that if you took it from beginning right to end through the appeals process, it could actually stretch to five weeks that somebody would be in the supposed fast-track system. But they didn't balk at that. They found the system to not be inherently unfair, this three-day, as long as the Home Office went away and concocted some written flexibility policy to say, actually, it's not a straitjacket, this three days, we can be flexible, which they did. So in a sense, it was sanctioning this kind of five-week period. I mean, it wasn't the point of necessarily of the application, but it was interesting that they didn't sort of balk, as I say, on that five-week period. So certainly when we look at some of the cases, we can see that a lot ties down to, to reasonableness, what is reasonable in terms of detention, and then it becomes that judicial decision. And we've heard that actually it can be um, immensely long periods in the case of detention prior to deportation. Now, the other alternative of challenging is not so much this common law of judicial review and just looking at the reasonableness, is as, as Catherine was mentioning, is the human rights approach. And we heard about Saudi being a sort of very disappointing case and I'll just take one of the quotes, um, which I thought was quite, uh, quite poignant in a sense, was that the judges in one of the cases dealing with the, with the Saudi were saying that the Okington regime, which was a seven-day detention, was at the bottom end of the scale of interference with that right and was not markedly different from temporary admission with residence conditions. Now, clearly, none of them have ever been in detention, and if it was the point that was made, you know, for individuals who are through that process, it, it's clearly, you know, if they're coming from um, an environment where they've been tortured and have been incarcerated, anything that is anything like being locked up is going to be highly traumatic. But there, um, we can discuss later on about, uh, a bit more about the Saudi decision in terms of, of why they went um, forward with that. But uh, seven days, ultimately, was not deemed to be excessive. The concern, of course, about that is, having said it's not excessive, which the minority judgment said, was, well, where do you draw the line? And that's the problem we've been seeing, this elastic um, concept, really. However, I don't want to sort of end on saying that everything is bad, that the judges do, clearly it isn't, and there are a lot of cases to say where they have challenged um, detention through, if you like, the, the narrow constraints of judicial review, when you get, you know, judgments either way, and that's the problem with it. And there's a recent 2010 case, actually a very recent one, called Ibrahim, which some people are saying is, is um, kind of a positive judgment. The judge gave a decision there that 16 months was um, the point at which reasonableness uh, is a cutoff. So it's possibly coming down, still may seem quite a long period, but he felt anything beyond that could be seen to be unreasonable. And there are a number of detention cases heading towards the Supreme Court, which may help to sort of add a, a further clarity on this. But there's a sense possibly that there might be a bit of a change underway. Yeah. Um, to conclude then, as I, if I get, please wrap up, wrap up now. <laughs> um, the point is really that I'm, I'm saying there is then that we've obviously got the judi judicial re uh, review process, we've got the human rights process, which it was hoped in some senses would challenge 
the actual detention itself, but as we know, 5.1f allowed, as I say, for this limitation um, to be applied. And of course, it was the interpretation by the judiciary of that to say that until they authorized entry, it was unauthorized, and that it could apply to asylum seekers as well, that it is problematic. So it leaves us with a question, really, in a sense, where do we go from now? Um, we're rather tied up with this judicial review of detention as one possibility, and it's, it's dependent on the judiciary in some senses as to how they conceive of reasonableness and rationality. Slightly cut off in terms of asylum seekers on the Saudi um, case on human rights. Catherine has opened up um, an option down the EU, which is interesting, and maybe that's the, you know, we will see some future movement there. In, in the sort of uh, spirit of this um, uh, workshop and the multidisciplinary nature, I think, of, of the audience, I thought I might end on suggesting a sort of another line, another tack, which is this, this newer concept of human security. And some people have been sort of disputing this as very helpful at all, as a sort of added element of human rights. I think uh, lawyers probably don't like it because at the moment it has no sort of uh, normative basis. But it's, it's just adding something to the discussion, really, that it may help, if, in a sense, to if we're pushing down this line of human security, which is offering a, a new way, really, of conceptualizing protection concerns and um, empowerment of the individual, and really a reasserting, if you like, dignity and equality and justice for all. It's just another possible method <coughs> to influence the discussion and the debate and maybe put pressure um, on, on the sort of notion of detention itself. Mm. Thank you. I, I didn't go too quickly there, but it was quite a Thank you so much.